0: I want to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts tonight. The book of Acts, and uh, as you know, this is the fifth book of the New Testament. While the order uh, of Bible books I don't believe to be inspired, uh, the book of Acts coming immediately after uh, the first four books is definitely providential at a minimum. Uh, The first four books are all given the title, what? We have uh, not just Matthew, but the what of Matthew. The gospel according to, or the the record of the gospel is given by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the word gospel means the announcement of good news. And all four of those announce the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Matthew declares the good news that Jesus is the King, first of all, of the Jews, but ultimately the King of heaven and Earth. Mark declares the good news that Jesus is the servant, in fact, the greatest servant that the world has ever known to accomplish much for mankind through his humble and diligent ministry. Luke. Uh, one of my children reading through Luke recently, maybe a couple of them, and just talking about the picture of Jesus there as the ideal man, the one in whom is the perfect combination of virtues, but especially highlighting his tender compassion to those that are in need. John declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing on Him is the one source of e- of eternal life and. Each of these writers, of course, perfectly superintended by the Holy Spirit to make these emphases in the record that they gave us of the life of Jesus. And then the primary event that they all draw attention to is the fact that though he was a sinless man, he allowed wicked men to take his life by crucifixion. After which a couple of friends took his body, buried it in a tomb nearby, and what seemed like a defeat sets the scene for the greatest victory. Three days later, as you know, he came up out of the grave and he walked amongst those disciples demonstrating he was not only sinless man, but he was the very son of God. <clears throat> and this is the good news declared in those first four books of the New Testament. And with that in mind, that's background in mind, we turn to the book of Acts. And, and in the first verse, Luke, who's the human penman, um, indicates that the gospel he had previously written, which is uh, the gospel of Luke, was of what Jesus, notice the last phrase of verse 1, it was just what Jesus began both to do and teach. The gospels are not the end of the story concerning what Jesus was doing and teaching. Acts here in verse number 9 picks up uh, the activity of Jesus when it tells us in verse 9 of his ascension back into heaven. And then it tells us of what Jesus continued to do through the disciples to build his church. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against that. And what we have in Acts is the ascended Christ, yes, but he's continuing to build his church. And I'm just going to hit some highlights, but if you look over to chapter 2 and uh, verse number 32, you can see again their reference to this Jesus, this ascended Christ is the one that in verse 33 sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost to do that work of convicting and and drawing to Christ. Uh, It is the sin of Christ in verse number 47, just coming down, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. You can look over in chapter 3 and uh, verse number 26. Notice, unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and it's God working through Jesus to turn away every one of you from his iniquities. And we really could go on. I'll, I'll just mention a couple others in Acts chapter 9. Do you remember who it was that appeared to Saul who became the Apostle Paul? In that light on the road to Damascus, I am who? What did he say? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It was was Jesus that saved and commissioned him. It was Jesus who appeared to Peter in a vision in Acts chapter 10 on the rooftop in Joppa and sent him across what was in those days that massive ethnic divide to go to the home of a Gentile, take the gospel message with him. And what we're reminded of as we look at these events is that these activities recorded in the book of Acts are not, <coughs> as uh, our Bible publishers have written, they're not the Acts of the Apostles. And they're not the Acts even of the Holy Spirit, though some have highlighted that. But, but what we have in the book of Acts is first and foremost the Acts of the Ascended Christ to build his church. The Gospels were just the beginning, but Christ is continuing to build his church This is part of the record of the book of Acts. Another part of the record, though, as you go back to chapter 1, is how he would do that, who he would use to do that, what channels he would use to do the building of his church. And we as believers have a role. I want you to notice the familiar words of verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. You shall be witnesses. You will be the ones giving testimony. You will be the ones opening your mouth and Telling others what Jesus has done. He wants us to open our mouths and tell people that he is the king of heaven and earth. And yet he's the greatest servant, the most noble man the world has ever known, to tell them that he was God come in the flesh and that he is the exclusive savior from sin. And he wants us to proclaim that message, notice again, to the uttermost part of the earth. The word translated uttermost. If you've never put that in there, you ought to put it there so that you have it for all time. <coughs> it's actually the word um, eschatos, from which we get the term eschatology. But it, it means last. Um, eschatology is the study of last times, end times. Um, the eschaton could describe maybe the last minute, <coughs> or you could describe your last coin or the last available space. And I just want to remind us again that it is the mind (coughs) of the head of the church that we give testimony to him in every last place on the earth. That would be our Jerusalem, whitewater in the surrounding area. Certainly that would be Judea, as it says, Wisconsin, Samaria, maybe other states in our, our country, and every last place on the globe. And the record of the book of Acts it really highlights, essentially, a 30-year history. Um, and it records in the history of 30 years, about, give or take a little bit, the, the adult lifespan, the, the lifespan of one adult in the, those active years. And it records the geographical advancement of the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, Asia Minor, Greece, ultimately to the capital of the empire, to the city of Rome. And I want to draw your attention to how the book ends, because this is also instructive. If you go all the way to chapter 28, Acts 28 and verse number 30. Acts 28, verse 30, we'll read through verse 31, these last two verses. Notice, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, And received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. And that's it. (laughs) Wait! When did he die? How long did he do that? Uh, We have some hints here and there and some other epistles, but honestly, we, we don't have... The end of the story. If, you know, when you come to the end of a book which tells a story, eh, you want to know the end of it. What happened to Paul? Did he ever get out of house confinement? Did he, you know, How did he die? And really there's no definite scriptural statement. It's, it's like the book ends without an ending. And that really is the point. And that is because the story isn't over. In this one man's lifetime, churches were planted all over the known world, but there was so much more territory that he had never stepped on. And he would die, and a new generation would rise, and until the Lord comes, there would be new generations, and there's new ethnic barriers to be breached. And the way it would happen for centuries now, we know, and the way it must happen today... for the disciples of Jesus Christ to be obedient to the mind of the head of the church and we keep opening our mouths and testifying of the person and work of Christ and keep asking Him where would you have us to go? Because there certainly are places and people that have never heard. That's to be the rest of the story. And it won't be completed until Jesus comes again to take His bride, His church, out of this earth. The record in the book of Acts, we learn, then that gospel advancement was to come through believers, disciples like you and me, opening our mouths and testifying of Christ. But we also learn that gospel advancement was not just a personal and individual activity. I want to have you go back to chapter thirteen, beginning in Acts thirteen we learn of the Lord's use of one particular church and its missionaries. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I've called them. And when they'd fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And what we've just read of in these verses is the first occasion of a local church doing, as we're doing tonight, sending out missionaries. We've given In the past, examination of commendable qualities of Antioch as a whole, but as we prepare for the teach-outs departure, I want us to draw attention to the qualities of the church in relationship to its missionaries in particular. What kind of church is useful in partnership with missionaries? And we've considered some of these same truths about three years ago, but the answers are so foundational that they really are worth repeating. What what kind of church does God use in partnership with missionaries to fulfill the Great Commission? And the first characteristic that just stands out immediately is that the church and their missionaries were marked by prayer and fasting. The church and their missionaries were marked by prayer and fasting. Verse 2 We learned this is what they were doing as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. You go to verse number three. Verse three records that they entered another period, it seems, of fasting and prayer before they sent them away. When they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them. Uh, This first trip would lead them to the island of Cyprus and then into Asia Minor. You can read that as you continue on there. Chapters 13 and 14 note at least seven different communities where they witnessed to the Christ, and if I'm following correctly, Derby was the farthest away, and then they retraced their steps. But I want to have you turn over to chapter 14. One of their purposes in revisiting the new churches was commission leadership. And I want us to look at chapter 14 and verse 23. As we see them doing that, Acts 14 and verse 23. It says, that when they had <coughs> ordained them elders... In every church, and notice this, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. They, they commissioned new leadership in the same way that they had been commissioned. They highlighted the activities of, of prayer and fasting. and The rest of the book of Acts is occupied with primarily the Lord's use of Paul he wrote letters back to some of these same churches that the Lord used him to start, and he gave testimony amongst other things to voluntary and involuntary fasting. And he said, often. And we're not going to take the time tonight to demonstrate the significance of prayer accompanied by fasting, but I think if we did, what the scripture makes clear is that prayer in the context of fasting really demonstrates a hunger for God's harvest that is greater than a hunger even for good gifts from God like food. And it not only demonstrates a a hunger, but it also demonstrates a dependence on God to do what you well know you cannot do. And brethren, if our missionaries will experience a full measure of usefulness in the Lord's hands, both our missionaries and the churches that send them find themselves regularly in the act of prayer and often in the context of fasting. And, and <clears throat> because we've been here before, I, I, I just even want to use a benchmark. Um, last time the Muslims were with us was three years ago, and I know we emphasized it then if we didn't um, in between then. But I really want to ask, really, how often has there been any time, even in the last three years, When you knew anything close to regular fasting, to set aside time for prayer and to communicate a hunger for God's harvest that is greater than even the good gifts of food. And to communicate, whether it's in restricted access country, it's in primitive country, it's, it's in a hard European country, wherever it may be, as we have multiple ones, it's in dangerous territories in Africa in some cases what what are we doing to communicate really that are 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 we just sympathetic? you know we'd like to hear we'd love to hear of people getting saved we'd love to hear of our missionaries getting opportunities and and it kind of fills our heart with joy, and so we say we're for it, and we throw our dollars in here and there, but really, folks fasting for the sake of prayer communicates another level of a hunger for God to do what no man can do. And that we're not trifling in this. And if God would use us in partnership with our missionaries, our missionaries and us, we'll know what it is to seriously labor. Look, some of us have providential factors in our lives, but some of us could be here on Wednesday nights and frankly just have a take it or leave it attitude. Wednesday night, coming together as a corporate body. And we could do it and we don't. If we can't make it out to Wednesday night, really, I wonder where, where there has been any kind of prayer and fasting. Sometimes when we go to prayer, look, I want to challenge you young people. Uh, we thank the Lord for you. You're a great blessing to us. Sometimes when I get a chance to pray with you, I'm thrilled to pray with you. But sometimes when one of us isn't with you, you get together and have a chit-chat time. For extended period. chit-chat all you want afterwards until your parents are ready to leave. But get down to prayer. There's a serious business when we get to prayer. And may God help us to really um, carve out the time and put a first-rate priority and really plead with God and labor in prayer. The, the record of this church, the record of the rest of the early church, indicates that the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word go hand in hand. If the gospel is going to advance, it will be through churches and missionaries that are engaged in prayer and fasting. Secondly, the focus of these missionaries was the proclamation of the word in evangelism and discipleship that led to the establishment of churches. I want us to go back, if you would. We noted when the, earlier the Lord made it clear his will was people be witnesses. But I want you to see back in chapter 13 as he uh, sends them out and the church uh, recognizes the hand of God and sends them out. Verse 4 says, they, So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost depart into solution from thence sailed to Cyprus and when they were at Salamis, they did what? I know it's simple, but say it. They did what? They preached the what? They preached the word of God. Chapter, 14, uh, chapter 13 and verse 12, if you'll look down there. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the what? At the doctrine. Look at verse 16. Well, verse 16 I should say all the way down through uh, verse 41 really records an extended witnessing time. Paul stood up, beckoning with his hands, and men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. And then he goes back into the Old Testament scripture. And all the way through, you can see him citing scripture. You maybe have it all the way in your margin if you have any kind of a, <clears throat> of a Bible study aid there uh, of his citing the Old Testament scripture. You can come down to verse uh, verse 44. The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to do what? To hear the word of God in verse number 49. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. The scriptural record emphasizes the proclamation and ministry of the word as the primary missionary activity. There's a movement today spreading rapidly, in particular in seems to be in big cities um, the focus has been called the gospel indeed uh, that's just one of the newer labels uh, there's it's been around for some time but the focus of the gospel indeed as I was doing some reading about it is its focus is on staffing soup kitchens and building preschools and elementary schools and establishing health clinics and fighting all sorts of societal ills through humanitarian efforts and 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 um, as I had opportunity to read in a blog setting where people could uh, interact with one another some some of young men coming from our fundamental training institutions are following some big names in broader evangelical world and they're moving ministries in that direction. A couple people just boldly announced that they have dropped their uh, foreign missionaries. The explanation is that they're going to spend their resources on displaying the gospel indeed in their local communities. Um, Other cases, they're sending out missionaries whose primary focus is on ministries of compassion. And that puts it difficult to wrestle with. How do you argue against compassion? Right? Right? Um, the problem, of course, isn't with compassion and deeds of kindness. The concern in many cases is that you look and there's very little to no message proclaimed at all. And where there is a message, it's so watered down by uh, completely ecumenical groups coming together with very different doctrinal backgrounds and, and all kind of gathered together in the kind of the spirit, so-called, of Christianity. But the first activity in missions and acts was the teaching and preaching of the word. <clears throat> As a companion to that emphasis, their efforts were on establishing churches. I already had us note, chapter 14, and verse 23, that when they were on their way back to Antioch, they were ordaining elders in every... Well, look at it. Chapter 14, and verse 23, they were ordaining elders in every church that's what was established when they left the communities they had given focused attention to churches were planted there's wonderful supports and we we have them all around us and some of you labor in them and my own children labor in them and so on but they didn't go into communities to start hospitals or orphanages or schools or camps and I'm not against any of those things when they support evangelism and discipleship of local churches but the New Testament record is they went out to evangelize the lost and disciple new believers into the fellowship of the local church, and the way they did that was opening Bibles and teaching the Scripture. And, brethren, no one should get a romantic view that missions work is something subst- substantially different than work in the local church. You shouldn't think that there's a better training ground for missionaries and Great Commission ministry than the mainstream function of a local church and getting involved in all of it. Sunday school teaching and, and children's outreach and Bible studies and music ministry and all the things that go into all that. It's the proclamation of the word for evangelism and discipleship and establishment of churches. That's the mission of missions according to the New Testament. And I am so thankful we've been able to see that in action in Quebec, and we're confident we'll see that again in French Guyana, that that is the focus, and it must be the focus. And we have to encourage that in our missionaries. A third truth to notice tonight is that the missionaries maintained a healthy relationship with the church that sent them out. The last three verses of chapter 14 record the conclusion of this first missionary journey, if you notice there, chapter 14 and verse 26, says, "...and thence they sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled, and when they were come, gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles, and there they abode long time with the disciples." So this is full circle, of that journey. They're sent out of the church in Antioch. They go out. I, if I'm counting right, seven communities, planted churches, come back. And when they're done, they come back to Antioch. They gather the church together. They rehearse. And they stay there for some time. Why do missionaries go back to sending churches? Why do they report in to other supporting churches? And, and they go back because they recognize they aren't Lone Rangers. They're extensions of the ministry of the churches that sent them. And we, we have had a great privilege in the relationship that we've had with number of our missionaries. And as you know, it's only been more recently that we've become the sending church um, for the teach-outs. But um, we have had a growing relationship with them to the fact that it just really was a pretty natural step to take. And that doesn't, I don't know their previous church, and, and I don't mean to reflect poorly on it at all. But one was <clears throat> the opportunity we've had to go. But two was how many times Brother Teach Out, Pastor Teach Out, has called just soliciting feedback, soliciting prayer, um, counsel in some way, letting us know what is going on. This is in keeping with the highest ideals. We've become increasingly selective in in several ways in considering partnership with missionaries. There's different personalities. There's different gifts. um, There's room for drawing different lines of application in some matters. We have those dynamics within our own fellowship. But we should be supporting missionaries whose labors will be influencing church planting works towards the same beliefs and the same overarching philosophy of ministry. That's Cattle Marine Baptist Church and the ministries that support. And, again, we have, we have this great treasure. And the relationship noted here should cause us to take seriously every opportunity we have to receive reports and uh, encouragements and the hardships. And, and I think at least in, in personal private correspondence, we're not, not going to get just the glowing, everything's wonderful reports from the teach-outs. We don't want to just get the glowing, everything was wonderful. We want to know what God's doing and rejoice with you. We want to know where the hardships are and be able to pray. And when we get occasion, we need to take full opportunity of face-to-face fellowship. This is not just one of those incidentals. The Spirit of God has recorded this because this is God's plan and mine for Great Commission ministry through churches and their missionaries. And then fourth and last tonight that stands out from this passage is that the missionaries persevered through hardships that lay in the path of the Lord's will. And just have you back in chapter 14 and verse number 19, uh, we read in the town of Lystra that Paul was drawn out of the city and stoned and left for dead. But after recovering strength, verse 20, he went on with Barnabas to minister in Derbe. Incredibly, we read in verse 21 that they returned back to where? (laughs) They returned back to Lystra. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul explained why he was going to stay a little bit longer in Ephesus, and he explained it this way. He said, a great door and effectual is opened, And there are what? And there are many adversaries. And open doors and difficulties go together in the center of God's will. There were times and places that Paul fled. There were times that he was convinced he was in the path of duty, and so he walked right into the threat of death. And In Corinthians, he says three times, I'm sorry, that he he was whipped five times, he was beaten with rods three times, he was stoned once, he was shipwrecked three times. He endured a multitude of other physical hardships. And besides this, the care of the churches, he said, was a heavy weight. Others tried to convince him not to go to Jerusalem. The likelihood of imprisonment was very high. One man even says, a prophet, said that God had showed him that whoever's girdle this was was going to be imprisoned, and it was Paul's. But Paul said, none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy. The ministry which I have received, the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And that's chapter 20 in Acts. And then there's more pleading with him. And there's more indication of, of, of difficulty that was ahead. And Luke wrote in chapter 21, he said, when we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go to Jerusalem, but Paul answered, What are you doing? Why mean ye to weep and break my heart? For I am not only ready to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And he didn't die in Jerusalem, but he was ready. If that's what God would have to do. There's no, there's no gain for, I don't know, stubbornness, bullheadedness that's going to do whatever you've determined to do, no matter the consequences. But I would also say this, there's no substitute for perseverance through hardships that are in the will of God. And the perseverance that marked this missionary was not simply guts. It wasn't this courage. It was eyes fixed on the Lord and and he says it, I receive this ministry of the Lord. If I suffer in fulfilling it, I suffer in the name of the Lord. And so he goes on. And I I want to say to the teach-outs as you're here tonight, I've said this to others in the church, I can't remember how publicly I've said it, but um, what your family experienced in Quebec after the years and and then the way things came to an end, I don't think anyone would have blamed you for wanting to settle in a church in the States for a while and take it easy and recover. And I mean, I, honestly, I, I don't think anyone would have bat an eye um, for however long it would be. And certainly there's ministries you could have assisted at, at a minimum. And I just, it's been a challenge to me. It's been a challenge to our whole church that as the Lord closed one door, you're just looking for the next one. And you're not looking for something more comfortable, if anything, more difficult. Um, it's extraordinary because we know so little of it, unfortunately, but it appears to be in the Bible normal. It appears to be in the Bible normal that, that um, we just recognize there's going to be hardships and difficulties and persevere. If you've been here for any length of time, um, I think you know my favorite missionary biography, and that is To the Golden Shore and the story of Adoniram Judson. In combination with that, I guess favorite proposal, a sober one, the letter that Adoniram Judson wrote to Anne Hasseltine's father asking for her hand in marriage just captures me as much as anything with the sober realities, but the glorious motivations of, of missions work. Adam Iron was what was on what we would call deputation today, and he met Anne in her parents' home. Um, she was helping serve some of the missionaries at the table. But he wrote this letter um, to her dad one month after they met. I'm quoting. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? With the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. And Anne's dad showed that to a friend of his and said, What would you do? And his friend said, I'd tie her to the bedpost. But her dad consented, and he didn't see her anymore in this world. And he didn't see his grandchildren that died prematurely. But by the time her partner that she was a help to, by the time he died, with her help in starting that work, there were 63 local churches planted and thousands of believers. And the impetus for her, a work that's still going on in current Myanmar to this day. And you can be absolutely certain that his consenting is part of the work that God did. I'm thankful we have missionaries that are prepared to persevere. Brethren, we need to be marked by prayer and fasting. We and they need to be focused on evangelism and discipleship that establishes local churches, and we need to be part of the whole structure that maintains accountability and mutual encouragement with your church. I'm thankful you're here tonight. I'm trusting you're here because of that, because this is so critical. And all of us need to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you can be certain that kind of labor is not in vain in the Lord. I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes and we give opportunity for us to consider together where uh, where a night like this falls in terms of the scripture, in the plan of God. This falls right in an Acts 13 situation. This falls right in the purpose and plan of God to take a church in partnership with its missionaries, send them out to the uttermost parts of the earth to fulfill the commission that he's given to us of making the name of his son and the gospel known in the whole world. And that means that at a night like this, we are not just spectators. And in the days to come, we'll... We ought to be more than just cheerleaders. We have an ongoing responsibility. And it starts with this matter of prayer and fasting. I just want to ask again. In our individual lives, in our corporate body, are we part of fulfilling what is a first mark of a partnership that would be really use of the Lord. That is putting a, a great priority on this matter of prayer. And at least at various times, It's going to captivate us to the point that we set aside, voluntarily decline other good things, to just zero in with a passionate, laser-like focus on pleading with God to bless the ministry of the Word. We'll have more and more of that kind of a heartbeat when we're engaged in the ministry of the word, to see the advancement of the gospel here. What changes need to be made? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider the fact that this church right here in Whitewater, these missionaries, the the relationship that you brought us to, that this is right at the heartbeat of what you're doing in the earth. To make yourself known today and to bring yourself eternal glory. Thank you for the privilege of Participating. Lord, we're challenged with the sobriety of our responsibility and just ask that you would move in us. Lord, we ask that you'd strengthen us, convict us, humble us, draw out our hearts, that we would be here and that we would be for our missionaries all that you would have us to be. And we ask that you'd strengthen their hands in their hearts, in the labor. We thank you for opportunity to commit these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.